Thank you, Colette. Um, I don't know about y'all, but I, I like um, hearing the word read out loud, and it's um, especially with different voices, and um, we have some really beautiful readers here in the church who read very well for us. Uh, I've actually, I was telling Sue, I've actually gone to, in the mornings of listening to the word on a, on a podcast now, and how that, just the inflection of the reading just kind of changes my point of view of a, a few things, and, and it's incredibly rich. Um, so just an idea, if you want to do that, it's just thank you again, Colette. And thank you guys for the music, as always. You're such a wonderful job of leading us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for just the promises we have and just the pictures you paint in the scriptures and just what you have uh, done for us and what you continue to do through us. Father, we thank you that uh, who you are, just uh, so many, the names that come to mind in the scriptures uh, through the Psalms as well as the New Testament of who you are, that you're, you're as a companion to the lonely and, and you bring courage to those of us who are fearful and, uh, and timid and that you uphold the weak and that you are light to the lost and and guides to the wanderer and, and joy, bring joy to the, to the despairing, and uh, that you are a refuge to the ones that are hurting, and uh, strength to those who are weak, and you are the friend to the friendless. Father, we thank you for all those names that appear in the scripture, the, the powerfuls and the tender, and, uh, and count on that. And so, Father, we are here this morning to lift one corporate voice that says one thing, and that is you are good, and that you are beautiful, and that you have rescued us. So, Father, we commit this time to you as we look into the scriptures and look at what you have um, shown us, and ask that you, the Holy Spirit, be the teacher. And we thank you for the, uh, the wonderful concept of the Trinity that uh, has created, redeemed, and sustains us who gives us wisdom, who gives us hope, who gives us forgiveness. And so, Father, we give this time to you and ask that you lead us and guide us in, this, in looking at your scripture, that we, you uh, open our ears to hear what we individually need to hear and uh, that it, uh, it be worthy of your, your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we are continuing our summer series on why Christianity makes sense, and like, I, like we've looked before, we're looking at different universal values, and my argument is that these values point to something. These values point to something that is universal, that goes beyond us, and, uh, and they seem to be part of every culture, every history, every, every tradition. Uh, we've looked at justice, love, spirituality, and, and last week I introduced the, the theme of beauty, and so we're just going to uh, continue that theme this morning. Uh, my mom was uh, born in uh, North Texas, uh, born and raised on a cotton farm and uh, in the area that's kind of flat with deep, dark, black soil that's great for farmland. Uh, my dad was raised in East Texas in the Piney Woods, which is all the forest, and it's got red dirt and just tall pine trees. That's all it's got. And uh, he, he swore he could tell an East Texas tomato from any other tomato, Okay. Uh, he loved East Texas, and uh, my mom absolutely hated East Texas. 
Uh, when they got married, they, they moved to Rusk, which is in East Texas, and my mom couldn't get out of there fast enough. And uh, they moved to the North Texas area. And my point in all this is that uh, this all raises the question about beauty. Uh, I inherited my dad's love for the Piney Woods. I love East Texas. I uh, don't like the humidity so much, but I love East Texas. And that's my, and I love, and my mom hated it. And uh, my dad, you know, tolerated North Texas because my mom wanted to live there. And there are tastes and preferences and things. And so that just raises the questions when we talk about beauty. And I was asked the question last week after the service, well, what about taste? What about preference? Is, uh, what makes something beautiful? What is beauty? Uh, is, uh, is it more than taste and preference? Is there things that are inherently beautiful in and of themselves? Well, I did find out that, that uh, I believe that you can find beauty in just about anything. And we, you know, I found beauty in East Texas. I found beauty in North Texas. I mean, here it's magical. I mean, there's no question about it. It's just a magical place to live. Uh, but even in Iowa, you know, it came to love the, the grasslands in Iowa. There is beauty. And people tend to say they love the desert. I'm not a fond of it myself, but there are people who find beauty in, desert, in the desert. So the, the, it, it's, there's no doubt that the word beauty is a slippery word, and it is hard to define. It is hard to get our mind around exactly what that means. And I proposed the definition last week that beauty is the harmony of the true and the good. That if something is truly beautiful, it will also be true, and it will also be good. And that's how we can know what is, what is beautiful. It is this, this thing that's kind of, kind of vague, but it does exist, and it goes beyond our preferences. It goes beyond our taste. It goes beyond our entertainment. And so taste and beauty are different things. Beauty is the harmony of the true and the good. But Christians in the past, especially since the Reformation, have always been kind of uneasy about beauty. We've talked about this a little bit last week. I touched on it last week, that since the Reformation, uh, they kind of rejected, you know, some of the visual arts of the Catholic Church, and it kind of be questionable. And uh, even today, people will kind of question whether beauty is really, really a good thing or not, because it's awful alluring, uh, it's awful attracting, and it, it can cause us to, to go in a different direction. And, and people will say, well, the sensual, that's just too close to sinful, and so we need to really avoid beauty uh, uh, completely. And in fact, in the Amish communities here in the States, uh, you know, they're, they're descendants of the Reformation, and plainness is one of their values, to look plain. And, one of their va- and some churches even today uh, have, have disbanded has, or has, has banned musical instruments. It's only the voice, they say, is capable of praising God. So they kind of, we do have this sort of uneasy feeling about beauty. Oftentimes Christians think that they'll call it the beauty is either irrelevant or it could even be dangerous. But I think that if we lose that, that if we lose this sense of beauty, then we also lose the means, I believe, of loving God, and we also lose the means of feeling loved by God, that if we get rid of it. So I think beauty is crucially important. I think it, it, it creates passion. It is something that draws us to God. And I would even say that it is the portal through which God reaches us and through which God woos us. That it is that that important. That it is something that enhances us at every single level. And yes, it is dangerous. But if we deny it, then we miss out, I think, on what God has given us. 
He's given us five good senses for a reason and to take delight in. So beauty does create passion. It, the problem is when beauty becomes the ultimate. That's where the problem rises. That beauty is important. That beauty is the penultimate. It's the, it's the next to the last thing. But when beauty becomes the ultimate, that my life is, is wrapped around this thing that is beautiful, then it becomes idolatry. Uh, you may have seen the bumper sticker, fishing is my life. Uh, I've seen it another way, you know, windsurfing is my life or, or, or beer is my life or whatever. But I'm just using fishing because that's the one I saw. Fishing is my life. Now I like to fish, you know. But when I see that, I'm thinking, oh, come on, dude, you can do better than that. I mean, your, your life is better than that, right? You know? But then I started thinking about it a little more deeply and, uh, and realized this is idolatry. When fishing is my life or work is my life or wine is my life or reading or movies or whatever, then it becomes idolatry. And I think a better way to phrase that would be fishing. Thanks, God. That's what I mean by the penultimate. That we love this. This is great. This is beautiful to be out on the lake, especially in this area, to be out on the Columbia. And you just go, thanks, God. This is pretty great. This is pretty wonderful. I delight in that. So does beauty have anything to do with God? Is there anything about the Bible, in the Bible, about beauty? Well, if you go home and look at your concordance and look up beauty in the concordance, you're probably not going to find a lot about beauty, okay? You're probably not going to see a lot about beauty. And people will say, okay, the Bible really doesn't address beauty that much. Or if we do, if it does address it, Preachers like me and scholars and, and academics and professors, those kind of people, they kind of screen it out because they almost feel like it's useless. I mean, how useful is a rainbow, right? How useful is a sunrise? It just is. It's just beautiful. So we kind of screen it out and we kind of make, a, kind of at first glance, you go, well, the Bible doesn't really talk about that. Well, the biblical word for beauty is glory. And the Bible has a lot to say about glory. In fact, he tells us that the creation, the creation was given to us to glorify God. Not that God needs us to admire him or that God needs us to flatter him, but the glory of God is simply this. It's simply the outflowing of the generous love of God on creation. That's glory. And so when you look at glory... Yeah, the Bible does talk a lot about glory that we would call beauty. So what I want to do this morning, I'm just going to give you a couple examples from the Old Testament, but then we're going to camp out in the book of John. And I think the book of John, and I've used John throughout this because it, he treats all these themes. And I think the book of John just kind of tells us about this, tells us about God's beauty and God's glory, and the, or maybe just shows us. But there's a couple of, places, couple of things in the Old Testament that I want to mention. And first is the creation. Paul says that ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. In other words, creation declares his glory. 
And we see that from the very beginning of the Old Testament. In the very beginning when he talks about the, the creation of the sun and the moon and the earth and the water and the skies. And, and, he, and he uses this word, and it was good. That's how he translated in English. The traditional way of translating that word, tob, is it was good. But that word is complex. That word can mean valuable. It can mean lovely. It can mean desirable. It can be wonderful, marvelous. So you could easily, as translated it, instead of it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good, you could easily translate it, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was very beautiful. So even from the beginning, the glory of God is declared, the beauty of God is declared, and this declares his glory. The other thing I want to mention is the tabernacle, the second half of the book of Exodus. You, get, you, you look at some of these highfalutin commentaries about the book of Exodus, you get to the second half and you get this debate of whether Moses wrote it or whether he didn't write it. Uh, did he use a redactor or did he not use a redactor? Where's the source of this? And just all this complication. And, and, you know, and we get lost in all these debates and it's like going to an art museum and discussing the frames. You know? And we miss the beauty. But if you go back and you look at it, this is incredibly beauty. God loves beauty. It is very important to him. Just imagine looking at, that, at the tabernacle that they're supposed to construct in the desert and the, and the gold and the colors and the designs and the sculptures and all that in the middle of a, of a sand storm, you know, in the middle of a, of a desert, how brilliant that would be. This is beautiful. And all these things are to, are to, to direct us to God. They're, they're all to point us to the glory of God. And that's the reason I changed my opinion when, when we, in the, the churches I showed last week in Mexico. And at first I thought, how ostentatious, how, you know, I was like, you know, what did it spend all this money? But then I realized they're actually being pretty biblical. They're actually pointing to something and telling us where this is and telling us and giving us the, the pointing to God, the maker. That beauty leads us to a doxology to a praise. And so we have this in, in the tabernacle of, dis, of, of beauty, of honor, and, and respect, and decoration, and glory that, that just inspires awe. And one of the things I appreciate about the scripture, the reason you don't see beauty in your concordance, is because like all good authors, they don't say, hey, look at this. This is really pretty. This is really good. You need to be in awe. They just show it to you, and you're to be filled with admiration. Uh, Sue used to paint in a, in a studio in Puebla, and she had a friend that painted with, uh, painted with her named Carlos. And Carlos liked to paint horses, wasn't it? He loved horses. And after he'd finished horses, he'd always come over to Sue and go, Que padre, no? And he'd say, and this is really good, isn't it? Isn't this beautiful, you know? And they, they, he was good. He really was good. But it was like, you just look at it, and you're supposed to let the person be filled with awe and wonder. Well, this is what the Bible does. The Bible describes all this stuff and then say, you need to get this, right? They just describe it and you go, ah, this is what it's like. And we heard that in John chapter 20, which we'll look at, that John just lays it out there and you go, this is awesome. This is wonderful. That's what beauty is. So then we come to the book of John. I did want to mention this. In Psalm 65 just kind of reiterates the point I was trying to make. And they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. 
You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. We just know it. The sunrise doesn't have to be beautiful, but it is. What is beauty? I don't know, but that's beautiful. It just is. It just is. So you get to the book of John, and John lays this out. And from the very beginning in John chapter 1, which we heard Dr. Armadine read last week, and he starts off by, by talking about the word, the logos, the word. And it's not the stoic word or the word of Plato. This is a different word. This is a word of a human being. And the Old Testament tells us that this word lasts forever. It will endure forever. That this is the word that brings rain and snow on the creation. This is the word that began everything. This is the word. And then John tells us at the beginning, he says, and his glory was revealed to us. And that should give us a clue. This is what the rest of the book is all about. It is about revealing the glory of Jesus. And it starts off right off with the wedding in Cana. When he turns the water into wine. And what does John say? He says, this is the first sign that revealed his glory. The rest of the book is all about that. Verse, chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made a dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jump over to chapter 2. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And John does that the rest of the book. From the, the, the conversation with Nicodemus to the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well to uh, the feeding of the multitude to the tabernacle in chapter 7 where he gives that speech of the living water, the healing of the man, the lame man by the pool, the healing of the blind man. And then finally in chapter 10, that beautiful, wonderful painting of the shepherd. And you don't even have to grow up on a farm to get the beauty of that picture of Jesus the shepherd. And then it all culminates in chapter 11 with the resurrection of Lazarus. That this is what beauty looks like. It looks like life. It looks like joy. And he even compares it. John even compares it to ugliness. He says, John, Jesus says, open the tomb. And what do they say? No, no, Jesus, don't open the tomb. It's too ugly. The smell is too bad. And he says, open the tomb, and out comes Lazarus. That's beauty in contrast. And it all points then to the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 20. That's why I wanted Colette to read chapter 20. Because this is the birth of this beauty, this new creation that he has made. And we see it come full circle. We see the whole story come full circle in chapter 20. That Mary comes in the early light. And Jesus, the word, is the light. The light, the life who is the light to all men. We see this new life of creation. She runs and, and assumes that that when she comes to the empty tomb, the body is stolen, so she goes and gets the disciples. And the disciples are a lot like us. We're running around, blundering in, in the dark, you know, not knowing where we're going, not knowing what we're doing. And then all of a sudden, God does something huge and marvelous, like a resurrection. And they motivate them to run to the tomb. And after they leave the tomb, still perplexed, still kind of confused, well, what, is, what happens? Mary looks in and sees 
the tomb. And one of the angels says, why are you crying? And to me, the question is, why wouldn't she be crying? And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think, I think Mary sort of is the stand-in for all of Israel at this point. I think, why is she crying? And she, and she's just, she's, she sort of represents Israel, and she thinks about the, as you go back to the slavery, the killing of the, first, of the, of the children, the slaughter of the innocents in Exodus. And then you, then you come into the, the desert, and then you come into the captivity of Babylonia and the defeat by Assyria, and now they're occupied by Persia and Greece and now Rome. Why wouldn't she be crying? And John throws in this little detail that he looks into the tomb, and the clothes are there. He left his grave clothes behind. If you remember, Lazarus came out with his grave clothes. Jesus left his grave clothes behind. And not only that, there's the place where Jesus was laid and two angels on the side, on the ends. And if you remember in chapter 1, the logos came, the word came, and tabernacled among us. His presence was among us. His tent of the tabernacle was among us. And if you remember the description from the last part of Exodus, there's a mercy seat with two angels on either end. And she goes in and looks at it, and there you go. There's the mercy seat where Jesus laid and the two angels at the end. And so John brings us full circle. And it's as if he's saying that Jesus has once and for all established his tabernacle among us. The beauty of the new creation, the beauty of the resurrection, the beauty of forgiveness, the beauty of new life, who was the light to all men. All bring about in circle, coming back in circle. And we realize that this longing of beauty that we have, this longing that's true for every single human being, goes beyond the taste goes beyond our desires, goes beyond our preferences, and we realize there's more to it than that. There's more to it than just desiring something, wanting something, seeing something that's attractive. It points us to something. It points us to God. It points us to the Savior. And we look at, at all, those, all those things that give us the longing, all those things that give us joy and desire, and we go, we look at creation and we go, they were telling the truth. Our longing was telling us the truth. And Jesus fulfills it. So what's at stake if we deny the beauty? What's at stake if we don't recognize the beauty? First of all, what's at stake is our home. Our home. God does this amazing thing and does this amazing thing with creation. And then what he does is he creates this and, the, and then invites us to live there. This is a generous act of grace and hospitality to create our home and then invite us to live here. The world could have gone by just fine without us, but he created this home for us. And not only that, he then created us and said, you're in my image as well. Now, that image is stained, but he also says that image can be restored. This is our, our home. Even people who have no faith at all, who say, I only believe in reason and rationality, 
even they, even they know that they live in a marvelous, intricate, incredibly designed, complex, beautiful universe. I love that one scene out of Contact, a Jodie Foster movie where the science fiction where they, she, she goes off into space and kind of goes into this other dimension and sees this wonderful thing and she has that wonderful line that says, they shouldn't have sent a scientist, they should have sent a poet. Even they know that this is incredible, that this is marvelous and vast. What's at stake is our with God life. That without beauty, I submit to you that without beauty, we're going to have trouble praying and loving. That if we are short on beauty, if we don't recognize beauty, we're going to have a hard time, we're going to have a hard time praying, and we're going to have a hard time loving. I think beauty is that important. Our salvation must include beauty and goodness and truth. And if we don't have beauty, I kind of wonder whether we have goodness and truth. If we don't include that in our Christian life, then we're in for a very dry road. If we don't have beauty. If we don't have beauty, we don't have goodness and truth, and that is a testimony against God, not for him. If Christians walk around without goodness and truth and without beauty, we are testifying against him. We're testifying against his goodness and a good, against his grandeur. That's how important it is. Our view of God. John 6, in John chapter 6, Jesus is telling them that, that no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And this is one of those cases where I was reading to, re listening to the text and kind of changed my view because right before that, Jesus tells the group, says, you were looking for me because uh, I fed you. You, got, you had bread and, I, and you ate your fill. And I always kind of took that as a little bit of a reprimand. But then when I was listening to it, chapter 6, it read to me, I realized, no, that's not a reprimand. That's how the Father draws them with this beauty of this gift of food. And he says, you were drawn to me by the food, but guess what? I'm going to give you something even better than that. I'm going to give you spiritual bread that lasts forever. And that's our view of God. We some, God does not use coercive language. He doesn't beat us into submission. John says, Jesus says, he's quoting Jesus, God draws us to him. We are drawn to him. And what draws us? Beauty and goodness and truth. That's what draws us. He doesn't use the coercive language. We say Michelangelo, when he painted the Sistine Chapel, was reflecting what was in his heart, what was inside the man. Well, I think that's true of God, too. That we look at the creation, and it's a reflection of the soul, if you will, of God, what's inside of him. And it's not coercive. It's good, it's true, and it's beautiful. It's glorious. It, what's at stake is our evangelism. What if we took the Great Commission and instead of saying, I gotta declare your truth, declare the truth, what if we saw, thought the Great Commission as attracting people with beauty and goodness? that we were drawing them to the Father, they were drawing them to the Savior with goodness, truth, and beauty. 
And I would argue that beauty is stronger than truth and goodness. I can tell people the truth, uh, you know, and, they, and, they, and we, are, we live in a culture that's kind of resistance to truth. And we live in a culture that's just not convinced by our, our moral uprightness. But even they cannot resist beauty. And I think it's so powerful. What if that was it? St. Vladimir, I don't know if you know this story. St. Vladimir was, a, was a, the first Christian Russian emperor, czar. He was czar, whatever, uh, ruler back in 950 or something like that. And he was kind of investigating Christianity. And they went to visit the church in Constantinople, St. Sophia. And he says this, We no longer knew whether we were in heaven or on earth. We had never seen such beauty. We don't know how to tell of it. That's what drew him into conversion. Uh, David Brooks uh, was, does a lecture. Kevin Gage sent me this video. Uh, David, David Brooks is quoting. He says that he has a friend who, had a, who just had a baby. And he says, uh, when my daughter was born, I loved her more than evolution required. Isn't that great? I loved him more than evolution required. It goes beyond the evolutionary principles. There is something else here, something transcendent. And finally, what's our stake? Our ability to cope with tragedy. Beauty helps us see grace in the midst of grief. In fact, that may be the only thing that helps heal us and restore us. That in the midst of, 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 of grief or tragedy or catastrophe, there is some sort of solemn beauty that comes out of it. And I believe it's the beauty that really, actually, that God uses to heal us in the midst of, in the midst of catastrophe. I think beauty is, is more vivid in the midst of a storm, that it's more moving, that it just goes beyond, beyond our, our taste. It inspires, even when we don't, can't believe anymore, the beauty will cause us to take that leap of faith and trust God in the midst of tragedy and pain and suffering. It redeems us. We say, we like to quote Paul, that all things work for good for those who, all things work to the good for those who love the Lord. And we say that in our head, but I think beauty is the tool that God uses. I think beauty is the tool that, uses, that God uses to save us, to redeem us. Albert Murray was an old jazz um, musician. He wrote a lot on jazz and blues. And he says he wrote a, he, he, how the, the jazz and blues kind of grew up and was born out of Jim Crow uh, America. And he says jazz and blues did not grow out of a crushed heart. It grew out of a hopeful heart that it helped heal. One of my favorite testimonies is an author named Anne Lamont. And she tells the story how she had just gone, she was constantly bleeding because she had just uh, had an abortion. And the abortion went bad and was constantly bleeding. And, and she was in the midst of despair and drugs and alcohol, the whole bit, living in a trailer, the whole bit. And she's a wonderful writer. And she said she, every time, every Sunday when she'd walk home down to her trailer, she passed by this church and down in the city, and they were all singing these hymns. And she walked in to stand and listen to the music. And then when the preacher got up to preach, she walked out. <laughs> but it was the music. It was the beauty of the music that drew her to Jesus. Beauty is so, so powerful. I'm going to show a video here to close that um, um, we get this up. 
But let me give you a little bit of an intro to it. Most of us have either heard of Schindler's List or seen the movie. And it's about a man in Nazi Germany who used to save uh, uh, several Jews who used to work for him and try to uh, smuggle them out of the country. And uh, John Williams wrote this beautiful song uh, from the, for the movie. It's just incredibly moving. It's a sad tune. But what I want to show is this, this uh, juxtaposition of this solemn beauty of the music with the sadness of the story and how beauty redeemed it. And this particular concert, this particular playing of it, took place in, in a synagogue in Budapest. And so the, the congregation is full of, full of Jews, and I want you to watch their faces as much as I want you to hear the music. Uh, it's, just, it's just how that, the beauty of the music actually healed their hearts.